This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 in two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and my lotto rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know the gentleman whose picture you tweeted to me this morning? Oh, yes. Yeah, that gentleman. Yes. He blocked me on Twitter about six months ago for pointing out... uh, He blocked me for pointing out that there's no apostrophe in Dexy's Midnight Runners. (laughs) (laughs) And um, as my wife said, it's sort of what you want that person. Oh, yeah. What you want that that gentleman to do to to react quite so... uh, that's what Bruce it does. Neither in Dexys nor indeed in Finnegan's, as you discovered to your cost, mate. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> no apostrophe in Howard's and Dexys Midnight Runners or Finnegan's Way. Does that mean they're not belonging to those particular people? Correct. They're just names. They are separate clauses. There's that thing in um, Stephen Pinker book about the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's a brilliant explanation of why they're not called the Toronto Maple Leaves. <laughs> Because <laughs> they're called, they're named after the Maple Leafs, so they're the Toronto Maple Leafs. Ah. <laughs> and the the possessive is the Toronto Maple Leafs apostrophe, and so on and so forth. That's not just because they were named by a bunch of French people who didn't care. What, it's because what they're a football the... team and they can't <laughs> read. <laughs> it's actually spelled M A L P. There's now no apostrophe in uh, Waterstones either, which still causes me deep pain every time I see that. There's a lot of fuss about that on the internet. Well, I know, and I know it's annoying to be fussed, but but it it, it is actually, his name is Tim Waterstone. It's a decisive break with the past. (laughs) (laughs) Just ditching an apostrophe. As though that's going to make any difference. What's WH Smith's? Where's the apostrophe in there? Is there one? Yeah, I think there is. I suppose it's weird. Oh, where, yeah. Where's the apostrophe in Earl's Court and Baron's Court? Yeah, no, we're going to come on, gents. Depends. On the district line, surely. <laughs> yeah. One has an apostrophe and the other doesn't, but I can't remember which is which now. W. Smith is called WH Smith now. People call it WH Smith as one word. I've seen people say I went into WH Smith. And that is what it is. Do you yeah. think all, and that's so what it's not always Smith. WH Smith and Sun Limited. Do you think boots will eventually become boot? Boot. In a similar way. So they were quite smart. They thought, I don't want to be called Boot. Boot sounds really good. Jay Sainsbury. Then you get things like Tesco's, which isn't a name. Like a person. Yeah. Tesco's. Alan Tesco. (laughs) Nicky Tesco. Sainsbury's got an apostrophe. Well, they used to, anyway. I think that's enough, really. (laughs) On fire today. today. Absolutely on fire. If you just joined us. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to an hour on the apostrophe. Don't. With my friends, John Mitchell. The pedants revolt, yes. (laughs) 
Hello and uh, welcome to another episode of Backlisted, a podcast sponsored by Unbound, the website where readers and writers come together to make great books. We're actually sitting in the library of Unbound recording this and I'm John Mitchinson, publisher of Unbound and... Hello everyone, I'm Andy Miller, I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. We are Levis and Butthead. We're joined as ever by our young friend Matthew Clayton, the writer Matthew Clayton. Hello Matthew. Hello, I think I should be called M.S. Clayton uh, today. <laughs> yes, M.S. Clayton. M.S. Clayton, certainly. In honour of our... Uh, and our special guest today is David Quantic. DJLP Quantic. DJLP Quantic. That's like Anthony Valerian John Cheatham, the publisher. Ooh. Ooh. What's, what's the LP? Le Page. My great-grandfather was a ferry captain from the Channel Islands. And my great-grandmother lived in Plymouth, so all the men in my family have Le Page as a middle name because one of my ancestors mistakenly believed that by doing so they would be left a vast amount of money by some rich people in the Channel Islands. <laughs> We're still waiting for it. <laughs> and while we wait... And while we while wait, wait we toil so away. Be, in a bit, we're going to be discussing the novel Christy Mowry's own double entry by B.S. Johnson. But before we get on to that, John, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading and enjoying hugely a book called On Silbury Hill by Adam Thorpe. Now, Adam Thorpe is a novelist and is probably best known for his first novel, which has kind of become a modern classic called Ulverton. And that is a wonderful, wonderful book. Yeah, and which was kind of a... He basically told the story of a Berkshire village, more or less from the... I think it was the 17th century through to modern times, using the voice, the dialect, different characters. It was a sort of modernist approach to telling a very rural tale and it was interesting to me because it was disliked intensely by Salman Rushdie. It's uh, also now Nausgaard's favourite British novel. Is it really? Because he says it's not like a British novel. Well we had a huge row when I was uh, judging many years ago the best of young British novelists 1993 with <laughs> Mr Rushdie and I was amazed because I thought he would love it. I mean, I brought it to the table as my best offer for books that have been published in recent times. And he didn't like it. He just said, the pastoral is dead. And I rather thought, well, yes, maybe, but that's the whole point about mm. this book. Anyway, I haven't read all of Adam's novels since then, but this is easily the best thing I've read by him since. I absolutely adore it. It's a meditation. It's a memoir by the excellent publisher Little Toller, who published a lot of books in this area. And I guess it positions itself in this interesting moment that we seem to have as people writing essays about landscape, about history and the past. It's a memoir on one level of his growing up, and he travelled around a lot when he was a kid. His parents were all sort of in India and Africa. But he went to school at Marlborough and he also grew up in the suburbs. And it's his relationship with a landscape and particularly with this one extraordinary, possibly the most extraordinary prehistoric monument anywhere, Silbury Hill, which is a man-made hill built with antler pixies and bits of chalk <laughs> hewn out of the ground <laughs> and made into a... Um, it's, I mean, it's several hundred feet high. It's huge. It's the, uh, as he says at one point, if you had, as it were, the Statue of Liberty behind it, you'd only be able to see the Statue of Liberty's um, torch. And we have absolutely no idea why it was built. I, so, I sent you a link to uh, a Julian Cope song <laughs> yes, called "By the Light of the Silvery Moon," yeah. which is uh, which is terrific. And of course, he writes um, 
about Silbury Hill a lot, but not in the way Adam Thorpe does. Well, Adam really. Thorpe, it's great. It's got it's got elements of history. It's got elements of memoir, as I've said. It's got all the speculation. It was a big. There was a book in the, 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 the in the seventies by Michael Danes, which basically was all part of the sort of this idea that all of these uh, in that area, Avebury, Stonehenge, Silbury, that there were, the whole thing was a massive astronomical kind of calculator, and there are definitely some elements of that that are still being but there's no they've dug into it several times and they found really nothing inside it except for interesting clay and interesting rem- mm-hmm. remains of insects so and it was obviously it had, it's never it wasn't the same size it was built in stages it was smaller and then grew larger i think it's full of jam <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that that would be fun. Was a theory. but to be honest it's almost as good as most <laughs> of the theories but I guess that's the thing. It's if you're interested, you know, if you're interested in any kind of meditation on the past and what the past is. I mean, Adam Thorpe, right? He writes beautifully. He's a, Adam Thorpe's not just a novelist. We should say as well. Yeah. He's a poet, and he's written plays, and he's translated Madame Bovary, and, um, and he wrote a, pl- a whole play in Berkshire dialect once yeah, as well, which, yeah. you know, for which some cred must be given. When um, when Alberton came out, it's when I was working at Waterstones in Earl's Court. Don't look for it. It's not there anymore. <laughs> it's been raised to the ground. And um, we did an event with Adam Thorpe. He was ever so nice. And in order to ensure... Because clearly nobody really knew who he was when that novel came out. No, so, it came, came to really pretty much out of left field for most people. To ensure that some people came, Hilary Mantel, very generously and off her own bat, had said to him, if you are doing any events in London, let me know and I'll come and introduce you and interview you. So we did this event with Hilary Mantel and Adam Thorpe. She loves that novel. I think she said that's her favourite novel of the last 30 years or something as well. Then she published A Place of Greater Safety and Flood. I think those were the only two books that she published. But it was still a big deal for her to come and and very generously front up for him. So... Well, as I say, the mystery of the hill itself is unsolved, but he, he writes so beautifully around it. Just to give you a little tiny bit of the... Uh, which he says, perhaps nothing as spectacular and lovely has ever been created since on our islands. No work of art or architecture or technological achievement. And what we now have is a mere husk, which is a bit sad, but but no, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. On Silbury Hill, Adam Thorpe by the excellent Little Toller Press. Andy. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what have you been reading? Yeah, yeah. When we talk about the books I've been reading, I normally talk about an older book, but I wanted to talk this week about a book that was only published last week, but just is but the this most... This is you in uh, oh, January yeah, two, true, yeah. 2015, just so you're, published, if you're listening uh... to this in 2050. <laughs> it's a book by Laura Cumming called The Vanishing Man in Pursuit of Velathqueth. <laughs> now, I, I knew that would happen, listeners. <laughs> When I said Velazquez. So I'm just going to read, I'm just going to read what Laura says about this specific issue. We are very interesting points. We are hesitant. Hesitant. With Velazquez's name in English, wondering whether we have lisped it correctly. (laughs) El Greco is easy to pronounce. Goya sounds as it looks. Van Gogh we have arrived at as something quite other than the Dutch pronunciation, (laughs) a sort of harsh anglicisation that has long since settled into consensus. But Velazquez (laughs) is uneasy in any version, (laughs) properly Hispanicised or not Hispanicised. We do not mention him too often for all his transcendent genius. His is not a name on most people's lips. I thought this was going to be a book about Velazquez's painting 
And it is a book about the painting. It's a biography, but it's also a biography with the story of a man called John Snare, a 19th century printer and Easy bookseller. <laughs> John Snare. In balance. Oh, yeah, Unless you're Galician. It's Juan Snare. He was a printer, he was a bookseller from Reading who chanced upon a portrait of Prince Charles to become Charles, King Charles I right. in a country house sale, the discovery of which led him initially to fame and fortune and then to utter penury and disaster. So Laura Cumming tells the story of the painter, the story of the painting, the story of people who owned the painting, and furthermore a meditation on what art means at different points to different people of different classes. And I thought it was the most... I mean, she writes beautifully, so you start off... It's a delight to read, but as it goes on, the weaving of it into a real book rather than... I mean, there's a phrase that that I've used a lot, which people do use a lot in the business, of, of a long magazine article. Yeah. And if this book didn't work, it would be a long and perfectly interesting yeah, magazine no, it's, article. It's but it functions as a... A book in three dimensions. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm often, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to say before that the Adam Thorpe is a monograph, which I kind of never really know what what's the difference. It looks like a book. It's got chapters. How many words is it? Do you think? Um, I don't know. It's probably about fifty thousand. Sounds like a book to me. And that definitely looks like much more than a long article. This book is probably about 100,000 words, and there are plenty of books around which are about 100,000 words, which nonetheless are. Yeah. Which seem like very long magazine articles because they don't accumulate, they don't add up to more than the sum of their parts. But this is not one of them. Uh, yeah, this is just, this is incredible. And I, I, I mean, I'm making this a hostage to fortune. I'd be very surprised if this doesn't win a prize or two. And I, I would love people to read it because actually the balance between, you know, history and storytelling and critical theory is a thing that lots of people try and relatively few people can pull off and make page turning. But Velasquez is interesting, or Velasquez is interesting, because he's one of those painters that you hear people always saying he's the greatest painter of all time, the best, he's the, absolutely the best, which is interesting because you look and you think, oh, well, quite good, quite, it's kind of, mm. yeah, that looks like a painting of a Spanish nobleman and that looks like a painting of some Spanish children. But it's only when you get them really sort of talking to you about, you know, his technique and his brush strokes and all that sort of, which is fine. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to take it on face value, not as an art critic. But I did go to the Prado, mm-hmm. Prado, <laughs> in uh, Madrid. <laughs> and uh, This is just silly now. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. sorry. Uh, to see the Goya, uh, amongst other things. But I did find, actually, in the end, I came out of that thinking, yeah, I don't know what it is well, about Vel- she, Velazquez. She, but she he has, is, it's weird. The paintings themselves, the physical things themselves, are pretty she, astonishing. She's so... One of the things that's so inspiring about this book is she's absolutely wonderful at relating her own experience of seeing the paintings in the flesh. And, indeed, that's the starting point of the book, the thing you've just described, of going into the Prado and seeing the painting hanging there. But actually, she's brilliant as well at painting, no pun intended, a picture of you of the world in which <laughs> yeah, yeah. you couldn't just look on the internet. No. And, and if you wanted to go and see a painting, you had to make long, arduous journeys to other countries in order to, to stand there and see it and never be able to see it again to try and take the memory away with you. One of the things, ways in which the book really inspired me is it made me think, well, you know, I'm in my late 40s. I might have another 20 years 
on average, <laughs> on average, there's at least half a dozen paintings that I love that I've never seen that I would love to, you know, go to Chicago and stand in front of La Grande Jatte and see La Grande Jatte rather than... The year of looking it. dangerously, here we come. Yeah. yeah uh, the, that's the other thing about monographs. They don't fund <laughs> trips to Chicago. In, in my experience, perhaps Adam Thorpe has, has a different one. I don't well, know. But. Uh, yeah, Labours of Love, I think. Yeah, Labours of Love. Uh, anyway, so that's um, The Vanishing Man by uh, Laura Cumming, and that is a, a wonderful, wonderful book. We'll pick this up again after some adverts. Stay tuned to this. B.S. Johnson, who was, for a period at least, one of the most famous and fated English novelists took his own life at the age of 40 in 1973. Yeah, I'm just going there's a wonderful biography of B.S. Johnson by our former guest on Backlisted, Jonathan Coe. Uh, the biography is called Like a Fiery Elephant. And just before we start, I'm going to read just a paragraph Brilliant. from that, which if anyone listening doesn't know who B.S. Johnson was, this will place him. This is what Jonathan Coe says about B.S. Johnson. He says, Brian Stanley Johnson was, if you like... Britain's one-man literary avant-garde of the 1960s, at least publicly, anyway. He was a working-class Londoner born in Hammersmith in 1933, whose childhood was defined by the trauma of wartime evacuation and his failure to pass the 11-plus. He worked in banking and accountancy and as a teacher before winning places at Birkbeck College and King's College London. In the space of ten years, he wrote seven novels, of which the... One we're going to talk about today, Christy Mowry's own double entry was his sixth and the last published in his lifetime. And in addition, he wrote poetry, plays, wrote or directed more than a dozen short films. He was a sports reporter too and a reviewer and a polemicist and he worked tirelessly for the trade union movement, making documentaries and propaganda films. He died by his own hand at the age of 40. And in fact, although he's, he's known as a novelist now, first and foremost, he was doing all these other things at the same time. And it's worth saying that he wrote seven novels in ten years. Yes, seven pretty extraordinary novels in various ways, which we'll come on and talk about. But David, you said to me earlier that Christy Mowry's own double entry is your favourite, all-time favourite novel. Yeah, it just combines so many things that I like. It's quite scary it's very funny it's quite short i like that as well <laughs> people have sneered at it before it's it's an experiment in form which i enjoy yeah it's it's a great story it's quite as i say terrifying at point it just seems to fit every it's a great yeah every, every criterion for a book for me <laughs> should we do the blurb yeah here it is. This is off the 2001 ed Picador edition, which we think is a very good blurb we, we're pleased with this one christy mallory is a simple man his job in a bank puts him next to, but not in possession of, money. As a clerk, he learns the principles of double-entry bookkeeping and adapts them in his own dramatic fashion to settle his personal account with society. Under the column-headed aggravation for offences received from society, uh, unpleasantness of bank manager, general diminution of life caused by advertising, debit Christie under recompense for offences given back to society, general removal of items of stationery, pork pie purveyors limited bomb hoax, Credit Christie. All accounts are to be settled in full, and they are in the most alarming way. B.S. Johnson was one of Britain's most original writers, and Christie Mallory's own double entry is his funniest book. And then there's a great quote. Which, <laughs> this is weird. They've taken this off, the newest, latest edition. A most gifted writer, Samuel Beckett, and the future of the novel depends on people like B.S. Johnson... Anthony Burgess. Do you think that is because 
Samuel Beckett and B.S. Johnson are less well-known than Oberon War. Actually, in in the Jonathan Coe book, it explains that. It says that Samuel Beckett objected to being quoted on the blurbs of B.S. Johnson's books. And and also that Johnson spent his life, it's clear from um, Like a Fiery Elephant, telling seemingly in every letter that he wrote to anyone, quoting Beckett, (laughs) to tell people how great he was. (laughs) Uh, In a a, endearing manner, I have to say. But But also, uh, Beckett was like Stephen King of his day. Every book had something by him. (laughs) Yeah, a fantastic... Carol Robbins. Carol Robbins, a fantastic read, Samuel Beckett. Once I had picked up The Spy Who Loved Me, I could not put it down, Samuel Beckett. Watership Down made me cry, Samuel Beckett. If anyone is listening to this can settle a, a, a small bet, I'm willing to wager that that excellent blurb was written by Peter Strauss. Yeah, well, it's good. It's good. It's better than the, the, the latest one. I, I'm prepared to say that. Okay. But, um, right. uh, having said that, I think credit where credit's due, Picador are, are to be commended for bringing back, I think they've brought back four or five of B.S. Johnson's no- novels. Picador have reprinted all the ones they are... Able the estate to. are happy for them to reprint. It's the first uniform edition, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. There were dribs. You could get Christy Mowry in the 1980s. You could get yeah. House Axe did House Mother Normal. Yeah. And, yeah, it was really... I mean, living now in a world where you can actually get almost everything by B.S. Johnson in any major bookstore <laughs> or online is just a dream to me. When, the, when did you first read uh, Christy Mowers? It was about... I think it was 1976. It was in the local library. You know, there would be books in there that I liked as a teenager, and then the other well, you'd get something out just because you liked the name. And as I say, this was short, and it was just... I mean, Jonathan Coe has said that it fit his teenage worldview because it was surreal. It was like Python or the goons, and there is that sense of humour. There's that fourth wall thing. You know, when you're a teenager, you love the fact that he keeps breaking cover and addressing you directly. So the humour and, and the darkness and the anarchy. But yeah, I thought, in yeah, the I mid-70s. thought it was really full of anarchy. It felt like something that, you know, if I would... I only read it this week, but I would love to have read it in 1976, 1977, because it must have had real power then, I, I it's, it's one of those books that you... They're very rarely where you get something that's a short. There's not a single unenjoyable moment in this book, which is, God knows, that's rare. The extraordinary thing, it does all those things you're saying, David, but it does it without being... You know, he hated the word experimental because that was always used as a sort of a stick to beat his work with. But it's just playful, isn't it? That's what I loved about it. It's just you think, here's somebody who's absolutely has thought more about the novel than almost anybody else, but is still able to create a brilliant narrative about a completely recognisable... 17-year-old when he starts the novel, working in in a tedious... First of all, a a bank and then in a a tedious factory. But he makes the factory... Almost, that's what I, the, the detail of going from all the, diff, all the different departments. He writes brilliantly about that, I think. And it's the other thing memorably. is that the, the, all B.S. Johnson's books are also about A, books, B, writing books, and C, B.S. Johnson. But in a way which is successful, it could be terrible. David was talking about the breaking the fourth wall. I'll only read a couple of sentences here, but there's a, this is the t- start of a typical... Chapter. An attempt should be made to characterise Christie's appearance. I do so with diffidence in the knowledge that such physical descriptions are rarely of value in a novel. It's fantastic. (laughs) I mean, one of the great things about it is, yes, there's personal experience in it. These are jobs that Johnson had. There is a degree of affection for his factory years, you're quite right. 
But at this point in his career, you know, John, I mean, biography isn't that important to a novel. It doesn't matter entirely. Even with B.S. Johnson, it's not entirely relevant what he had for breakfast and how he was feeling. But at this point of his career, you know, he's, well, he's going to be dead soon at his own hand, as you said. But there's none of that in this book. This book has got bitterness at society. It's a revenge novel. It's about a sociopath. <laughs> it's probably full of things that Johnson wanted to do to people. But it's a frothy book. Yeah. It's a mm -hmm. light read. It's like if American Psycho had been written by Noel Coward. <laughs> <laughs> There's my blur. That is genius. But it, I, I love that. But it, I love also, I love a bit of escalation in a novel. And it, it, does, it, does, it does escalate from making a mark on a building to, by the end, without giving too much away, mass murder of a whole, whole London suburb. It's <laughs> one of the things that he was so brilliant at, though, is taking an idea and seeing it through. We'll talk about some of the other novels in a minute, but the idea that you would take an idea and logically progress it to mass murder, that's that, a very B.S. Johnson thing to that, do. That key idea is, in a way, it's a satire on the whole. He takes double-entry accounting, bookkeeping, and uses that. I mean, it's a brilliant device in a novel, the idea that the perceived slights, it's a moral double-entry. He feels mm. he's been dissed by people, so he has to, in order for the books to balance, he has to do something... To balance it up, but of course, by the end of the book, he's severely in credit against uh, society at large. What's the brilliant thing about socialism that he puts in towards the end, which he puts in vast amount of money, that the unrealizability of yes, socialism right. is, is basically that society owes him for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I also just love the madness of like the, the death of his mother. It's this brilliant kind of monologue, which apparently his his mother, I think, had died or was was was. It, it, but at the time the book was written, or maybe died shortly afterwards, but it was... Um... After Christie, it was meant to be a trilogy, starting with See the Old Lady Decently. Yeah. Yeah. The titles all add up. I can't see the old lady decently. Buries up. It was meant to be a mm. monograph about England and about his mother's death and an autobiography. So, yeah, obviously that's in his mind at this point. But the death of his mother, which is the bit I'll be reading in a bit, is just... It, well, it's, it's a fantastic piece of writing. There's no point describing it. So I'm just going to run through the, the novels that lead up to this one very quickly. Uh, as I say, they were written in the space of about ten years. The first one is called Travelling People. A fantastic book. It's the most conventional book that he wrote, the one that he and his estate don't want published again, which is fantastically annoying unless you're rich. Well, thanks to uh, our friend and colleague Scott Pack. We have a copy of Travelling People right wow. here, which he has very kindly borrowed from the London Library, <laughs> uh, because it will set you back, as you say, about £200 That's now right, to buy yeah. a copy. I wonder why they won't, why even the estate won't let it be reprinted. I know why Johnson didn't want it well, reprinted. I think the he didn't like it. Respectful yeah. to his wishes. I mean, it's a yeah. brilliant book, but it is, it's kind of not typical of what he wanted. It's the equivalent of like a really cool electronic band releasing a set of blues songs that they wrote when they started. <laughs> right. It's yeah. a it's beautiful novel. <laughs> it's, 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 very, it's a conventional novel. It's brilliantly written. It's very autobiographical, which is a very Johnson thing. But I think from his point of view, anybody could have... He probably thought it was too easy. Well, also, yeah, it has, it has different chapters written in different voices. It has all black pages. But as he said, these weren't innovations. They were things that had been done by, for instance, Lawrence Stern in Tristram Shandy. Yeah. So he hasn't quite got to grips with the sort of novel he wants to write. Yet. And yet it's a brilliant... That's the frustrating thing. If it was a crap book, you'd be like, oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's a really... It's, you know, it's one of his best books. So that's written in... 60, that's published in 63. That wins a prize. Uh, he then write, immediately writes another book published in 64 called Albert Angelo, which is a comedy 
based on his experience of being a teacher. And is that the one that cut, has, has got the cut? That is the one that has the. That is the. That is the uh, hilariously, somebody was spoiling the plot of. Uh, Christy Mowry on the internet this morning and I was saying he said I've just read Albert Angelo and I'm like spoilers because it is a book with a famous spoiler yeah it cuts through to a quote from a play and you whilst mm. reading the whole book you were because it's a brilliant way you're aware of the event now if it was a film you would have it on a little yeah, window in the corner of the screen it, this it, event yeah, replaying so it has the whole cut in the page but it also has the very famous the first infamous and brilliant B.S. Johnson-ism yeah. is in this book which is the phrase I'll call this lying Johnson believed and said frequently that telling stories is telling lies. Yeah. And the novel can only progress if it incorporates, honestly, that element of acknowledging that it's fake. And this is the moment that it all starts to come apart because, mm. essentially, it's like a painter saying that paint is lies. <laughs> essentially, yeah. what Johnson is doing... Johnson's <laughs> a brilliant writer. He's really good at making things up. He's really good at telling stories and lying. But he's decided this is a bad thing. So, essentially, what he's saying... And this is where Troll, the next novel, comes in, that a novel is transcription. In the <laughs> end, a novel is writing, I am writing... And it becomes circular, <laughs> self-eating. So, in the end, a novelist is a man who's writing, I am writing a novel. Yeah. And yeah. Troll, which I think is the next that one, is, yeah, is 66. the one where he gets a job on a trawler <laughs> so he can write a book about his experiences, even though he's n never seen a fish in his life. Fred Warburg of Sacrum Warburg said to him... Brian, you can write these books, but I've signed you up to write novels. You're just going to deliver autobiographies. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Um, but he follows, so he follows Trawl with uh, probably his most famous book, The Unfortunates, which is the book in the box. The book in the box. It has 27 chapters, 25 of which may be shuffled into any order you wish. It's For what it's worth, it's my favourite of B.S. Johnson's novels. It's probably the archetypal, you know, I mean, if we're going to use, use rock comparisons, it's the Sergeant Pepper or the Ziggy Stardust <laughs> of his career to be a bit naff. It combines all the great elements of his work, autobiography, experimentation, humour, emotion, because while he was someone who believed in playing with form and telling the truth, he believed very much in emotion... It yeah. has a lovely trick in it where, you know, he's, he's a sports writer and the whole book centres around a moment where he's sent to watch a match in a town and he suddenly realises he's been to this town before. This is the town where his friend Tony lived, Tony who mm -hmm. became ill mm -hmm. and died. And I believe actually pasted, just having a quick check, in the book, right at the end, is the actual match report is. by B.S. Johnson, <laughs> which is fantastic. Someone should do a collection of B.S. Johnson's football reviews. <laughs> they will. <laughs> and then fast, Gordon hit a fierce shot, the ball struck Mull's outstretched foot and went over Edson into the goal. It, the unfortunate is fantastic. The thing that Dave was saying there as well about the, how it's a really moving book and there's a really interesting, slightly sniffy overview of Johnson's career by Frank Commode. And Frank Commode says of the unfortunates Johnson was such a good writer that his novels survived his quixotic attempts <laughs> to ruin them for the reader <laughs> you know that the heart in what is quite an intellectual exercise in the unfortunates and the evocation of a friendship in it is it, it to me it's integrated brilliantly with the form in which it, it yeah I mean they're not separate you know that's what it, that's sort of what impressed me I'm just going to read a little bit just to show because it, it it's you know, most experimentation has that terrible sort of smells a bit of the lamp. You know, it looks for oh, I'm being experimental because I want to, I want to say I'm being experimental. But with Johnson, it's almost he can't, 
he's telling a story in an experimental way that somehow you're still reading in an enjoyable way as a reader. You don't feel... uh, Just this little bit where he goes to see the Shrike, his girlfriend, (laughs) who's a brilliant character. They go to see uh, the Shrike's old mum and... (laughs) Uh, the old mum says this, kind of, she lives in Islington. Oh, it was worth it all those years of sacrifice just to get my daughter placed in a respectable novel like this, you know? <laughs> it's my crowning achievement. And with only one leg, too. <laughs> the Shrike's old mum suddenly took off an artificial limb which had hitherto been unapparent to Christy and waved it triumphantly. <laughs> Sticker bombs it was, went on the Shrike's old mum. The first got St Mary's Church in Upper Street, the second got that brothel on the corner of Dagmar Terrace, and the third got me and my old man. The church, sex and marriage, observed Christy laughing. That's too neat. <laughs> That's how it happened, said the shop's old mum. You can't muck about with how it happened, can you? I'll have a word with you later about your obsession with knocking religion, said the shrike to Christy, <laughs> quietly and without venom. And now we must go, old mum. Sunday's the only day we have for a really long f- up. Cheerio. Ring if you want us for anything. <laughs> See you Tuesday night as usual. And who said we were married anyway, shouted the shrike's old mum after them, <laughs> slowly lifting the leg to wave them goodbye. That is a this, mad vertigo-inducing paragraph, but it completely works. The, th- the thing is, so Christy Mowry and the book that precedes it, his last two novels published in his lifetime, they're both comedies. House Mother Normal, Christy Mowry's own double entry, they're both comedies. They're both ideas that he had at the time that he was writing Travelling People hmm. back in 1963. And his own argument was always that the emotional need and autobiographical need to write Albert Angelo Trawl and the Unfortunates got in the way of him, you know, not writing those comic novels earlier. And in the case of both House Mother Normal and Christy Mowry, you can see there is a... It's almost like Johnson has set himself a puzzle. Mm. Can I create this yeah. ornate little box of a thing yeah. and make it yeah, play yeah. as a novel? Don't you think with House Mother Normal House as well? House Mother Normal's amazing because it's far better than it needs to be. <laughs> in that, essentially, it's, it's the classic thing. It tells a story of, let's say, eight characters from, from different points of view. The same evening, the same actions, all seen from different POVs, of various elderly people in different states of physical and mental decline. That's fine. It's all fine. But page by page, it's, it's exact moment to moment. Page two of one character's narrative is the same as page two of another character's narrative, and so on. He doesn't have to do that, but it's so... You could overlay the pages. If you could read through paper, he overlays the pages, and it all matches second by second. It must... You know, it probably took him a day, but it would take a normal human being years. Yes, It's so precise. I mean, the thing is, as well, these books aren't available currently electronically which is a shame, because it would be nice if they were available in ebook form, but also, like The Unfortunates and House Mother Normal, there's, yeah. you know, they're like <laughs> analogue versions of things that would be done digitally Brian now. Brian Eno had written them. I mean, basically... Since the invention of computer art, there's an awful lot of music and paintings online which do exactly what The Unfortunates does, which enable you to shuffle them round view or listen to them in random or semi-random order, create works of art. And this is what Johnson was doing with paper. I mean, if I was if I was staging plays, and thank God I'm not, they should just do it in live. Mm-hmm. Just go straight away, do it in a room, in the actual in a room like the one, which is basically a lot of people sat round an event in an old people's home. They should get the actors to learn it and just do it live, simultaneously. Really? So you can simultaneously. Well, that's not the normal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you can wander, yeah. wander from person to person. Yeah. A bit like road, or just do it, as, yeah. do it as a radio thing. You know, just use stereo mixing and well, mix in and out. There was a radio play adaptation of Christy Mowry's own double entry 
when it was published. I think I've heard it. Uh, yeah. Have you heard it? Yeah, I, I'd love he, to he hear read it. it. He did. He did. Johnson and, read it uh, with a couple of voices. That's and Timothy. Right. And there's a thing with Timothy West, which is, um, I think, down the Red Road, which is about him. essentially it's Mr. Creosote ahead of his time. <laughs> it's a man eating and his stomach rebelling. So we talked a lot about the experimental nature of, of what he did. I just want to. I just love to read this very short thing from the introduction of a collection of his non-fiction called "Aren't You Rather Young to Be Writing Your Memoirs," <laughs> in which he tries to just say why he writes. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, this is, sort of, this is why anybody writes, really. I'll just read it. I think I write because I have something to say that I fail to say satisfactorily in conversation in person. Then there are things like conceit, stubbornness, a desire to retaliate on those who have hurt me, parallel by a desire <laughs> to repay those who have helped me, a need to try and create something which may live after me, which I take to be the detritus of the religious feeling, the, sh <laughs> the sheer technical joy of forcing almost intractable words into patterns of meaning and form that are uniquely, for the moment at least, mine, a need to make people laugh with me in case they laugh at me, a desire to codify experience, to come to terms with things that have happened to me, and to try to tell the truth, to discover what is the truth about them. And I write especially to exorcise, to remove from myself, from my mind, the burden having to bear some pain, the hurt of some experience, in order that it may be over there in a book and not here in my mind. I mean, that's brilliant, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you say, what, what else really is there to say? But, but unfortunately, <laughs> we have Matthew. Well, I've got a, I've got the, so is there a link? This episode, I've got a genuinely tenuous uh, literary link. And the genuinely tenuous literary link is that in Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, there was a character called B.S. Johnson. Good God. No. Um, yeah. It stands for... It stands for Bergholt uh, Stutley Johnson or, as he's better known, Bloody Stupid Johnson. Um, <laughs> now, what I, what I love about this is that there was absolutely no evidence that Terry Pratchett ever read B.S. Johnson. And actually, it's really, it's just a coincidence. What I also love about it is that if B.S. Johnson saw it, I know that he wouldn't think it was a coincidence. And he definitely, <laughs> he'd definitely write to Terry Pratchett. Quoting uh, Samuel uh, Beckett. Quoting Samuel Beckett, <laughs> saying how incredibly angry it made him that there was a bloody yeah. stupid Johnson, because he wasn't bloody stupid at all. The rest of the world was bloody stupid. He was also a, a great letter writer. I always imagine being B.S. Johnson's agent and just... Oh. <laughs> shrinking agents plural just mm. it was a great risk to offend B.S. Johnson if he was with us now he'd basically be walking into people's houses with machine guns getting rid of Giles Corrin and other people who've <laughs> criticised him over the years it's this brilliant phrase from him uh, referring to most other novelists who he called quote those Oxbridge bastards <laughs> <laughs> not, not only are your novels not as good as mine but you haven't even started <laughs> I mean you know he did, he, did, he did have some serious chip didn't he I mean he honestly believed he was doing something special different new better and didn't have a lot of truck with what he called the literary establishment. Although it seems to me the literary establishment seemed to quite like his stuff. I mean, Kermo, Kermo calls him, refers to him in passing as, quote, a large and genially argumentative presence. <laughs> he made a film about Samuel Johnson, one of the things, yeah. and one of the praises that he lays at Samuel Johnson's door is, is Samuel Johnson could win an argument with anyone. Yeah. You know? The, the Don to the, to the heckler in a barge on the Thames. And I think Johnson is often 
arguing to convince not other people but himself. He oh, loves the idea of his own. He can certainly know. start an argument with anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, one of my favourite moments um, is that he talks about the concept of the human the human brain and the things that we can perceive. And he says, there's, well, there are limits to human intelligence. And somebody's saying, well, what about aliens? He goes, aliens? Yes, you're thinking of a dragon with six legs. <laughs> Something on those lines. It's just, yeah, he was feisty. And I think his consumption of alcohol did not diminish this in any way. Mm. Was he the literary equivalent of, um, of the footballer that Alex Ferguson said could start a fight in an empty room? <laughs> I think Beers Johnson didn't even need a room. I think he could start a fight with air. <laughs> Save it. do you want to... Um, I do indeed. ..bring it back to Christy Mallory for us, please? Yes, is this where I read? Yes. Yes, yes excellent. I'm going to read the whole damn thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is chapter three... It is a Shandy-esque moment. Uh, chapter 3, Ave Atque Vale to Christie's mother. I won't, I won't explain anything at this point. Christie lived with his mother at this point near Hammersmith Bridge in the stump of Mall Road left out of the flyover and associated highway improvements. When he arrived home on this day, time now being more or less continuous, his mother rose and welcomed him. Then she delivered herself of a statement thus... My son, I have for the purposes of this novel been your mother for the past 18 years and five months to the day if I assume your conception to have taken place after midnight. Now that you have had your great idea and are set upon your life's work, there is nothing further for me to do. Christie's mother paused, then continued. I do not complain. I have every reason to be satisfied with what I have done. I have cared for you without cosseting, cooked sensibly for you, without running risks from whatever disease was fashionably connected with food at each of several times. Those parts of my body under taboos ruling over the last quarter of a century have not been exposed to you since at least the age of three. I have, husbandless, brought you up not to miss a father, without damaging what they would call your normality. I flatter myself that you are yourself, that you are both more and less than what I have made you, if that means anything. Nor have I let your character be moulded by such other men as I have allowed, for I am not a wooden block, <laughs> to cross my path and enter in at the shrine of my womanhood. <laughs> the rather fanciful conceit is used to spare your blushes, Christie, for sons in general have to be over 30 before they can talk without embarrassment to their mothers about sexual matters. Or anything else I have sometimes, <laughs> in moments of cynicism, thought. Again, the charming old lady paused, reflected and went on. <laughs> I even allowed you to keep a pet, a cat, in order to encourage some kind of loving in you, despite the fact that Austin <laughs> inevitably meant more work for me in skinning and brazing the mice and other small creatures he regularly brought in. Brought in. Fortunately for you, Austin passed it over four months before the occasion of this statement I am at present making, so that you are thus spared, Christie, the expense of having him put to sleep at the veterinary surgery. But how I laughed when you first lisped, I do love pussy. <laughs> not, not I think I'll leave it there. Not so <laughs> now, one of the things about Christie Mowry's own double entry, uh, David, that I wanted to ask you if, you, if you have a theory as to why Johnson does this... At various points in the novel, he uses gratuitously long and obscure <laughs> words. Like, I've got a list of them here. Oh, yeah. Helmnuthoid, retropotent, campaniform, suffleminaceon, ungraith, brachuriate, plus at least one, exilutherosomize, which he seems to have made up, and when you Google it, comes up as used by B.S. Johnson, Johnson in Christy yeah. Murray's own double entry. Why does he do that? I think he doesn't do it for the Will Self reason of thinking of a word to show, look, I know a word. 
yeah. the kind of, you know, that's kind of a verbal tick. That's his catchphrase, like, can you hear me, mother? I think in the case of B.S. Johnson, what he's doing is, A, he's having fun, B, he knows that the literate reader will look it up. And so he's, what he's doing, to be pretentious, is he's taking you out of the book. He's I saying, agree, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, that you're going to stop reading, you're going to yeah, go yeah. find a dictionary. Yeah, familiarising, isn't he? He's yeah. just kind of doing that little, it just took, are you paying attention? Whoa, what? <laughs> and, he's, and in fact, he does it with one word. Instead of, you know, he does it in so many different ways. He does all the Brechtian thing, the, or the 18th Absolutely. century figure, in which Christie discovers. He does the thing we've just seen with his mum, saying, I am now t- you know, talking to you directly, the reader. But doing that with one word is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. It's not the trip. And the fact that there is that joke, that he's made up a word. <laughs> Which, you know, in the proper comedy rule of three, you have a real word, you look it up, a real word, you look it up, and then there's a word which doesn't exist. Yeah. So you're like, yeah. oh, B.S. Johnson, I hate you. I love how, in I agree with you, there's that kind of um, shaking you out of the novel by the single word and a kind of Brechtian thing. He even does the Brechtian thing in this novel by quoting Brecht. It's yeah, <laughs> a way of breaking true. you out and reminding you this is a novel. That's yeah. a classic, I do know what yeah, Fefremdom's effect is, mate. <laughs> Headlam paused to provide a paragraph break for resting the reader's eyes in what might otherwise be a daunting mass of type. That's <laughs> just exactly. Casually, just casually thrown in. It's exactly why I love that book, because to me it's exactly like The Goon Show. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like an old radio and people go, so what are we going to do now? I don't know, let's look at the script. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. The, it's it's can, the Bugs Bunny thing it, of running, out of, it's running funny, off the film. It? It's, it's, at one end, it's pointing back to like Beckett's stories. And I always think of that, you know, God help us all, it's an easy death. It is not. After that brilliant piece you're reading, it just ends with Christie's mother died. <laughs> no yeah, further elaboration yeah, needed. Yeah. So, But then it's also looking forward to, definitely looking forward to sort of Python-type humour. I mean, I think the humour of it is the thing that I think people like ourselves probably respond to in the... First instance, I read Albert Angelo actually quite recently. I just thought it was really funny. I mean, it was obviously all these other things as well. It's a brilliant experimental novel. It is a depiction of life as a teacher in the early to mid-1960s. Also, it's got a lot of very good jokes in it. And he doesn't pull his punches on the jokes. I mean, David, you write comedy, you know this. I think the uniqueness of Johnson, outside the experimental or whatever we want to call it thing, is this brilliant combination of being very funny and very bleak. That this is, you know, house mother normal is something that couldn't be filmed, could possibly be filmed now, but very unlikely. Christy Mowry, if done properly, is a very, very sad book. The last page yeah. is just, it's a, you know, it's a flipping whited sepulchre. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just a skull on a hill, is what it is. And is that, that brilliant bleakness. But, say, this book skips along. It's like a lamb that turns out to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a film, there was a film made about 15 years ago of um, Christy Mowry's own double entry. A film that's divided opinion, um, because it's quite... I hate to use the phrase, but parts of it are excellent. I, re- I really like the soundtrack, I really like the performances. Yeah. It's, the very short version is that there are scenes which are set for reasons that I don't understand, except possibly funding... In Renaissance Italy. That's correct. These scenes do not, for me, work. they're very lavish. These scenes do not, for me, work. How do they fit, how, does it, how do they squeeze that in? Vaguely to do with the inventor of double entry bookkeeping, oh, right. yeah. who was yeah, yeah. a Renaissance Italian. Yeah. They don't, in my opinion, don't add anything. The scenes in modern London, he actually has done, Paul Tickell, try not to sound patronising because it's a good job of work, he's made a 90s version of Christy Mowry. The factory scenes are great, Neil Stoop's great, the lead's yeah, yeah. great. It's really well done. It's a nice... But it could have been done as a good naturalistic film. The if pro- I'd done it, it would be great. <laughs> I think the problem, the problem with the film is, for reasons that are, un- that are perfectly understandable, they're trying to 
take from the book? I mean, in theory, you could say the novel Christie Mallory's own double entry is a, a novel about terrorism. Yeah. Yeah, and they try and make a film yeah. that is that novel. But, of course, it isn't really a novel about terrorism. It's a novel about novels and ideas and no. B.S. Johnson and comedy it's, and it, all those other things. It's very hard it's to make that play. It's really, more And, and there's, no yeah, ele- good... there's no element in the film of saying to you, this is a film. So there's no kind of Johnsonian yeah, yeah. postmodern element in it at all. <laughs> when I read Christy Mowry, only afterwards you think, oh, hang on, he's just performed an appalling act, you're kind of shocked, but you're just like, OK, he's done that. Yeah. Because it kind of fits his, ar- it fits his argument. <laughs> yeah, you're inside yeah, his, yeah. That's the difference. You're, you're inside, inside his, his head. head and then you're sometimes if, this was a, if you film Christy Mowry as a book about terrorism, as a film about terrorism, it should be from the POV of a terrorist, yeah. who's also a nutter. He's not a political terrorist. See, mm. In the end, Christy Mowry's a sociopath. Mm. He represents mm, mm, the mm. side of B.S. Johnson, which is basically, I'd like all the critics and the other authors dead. And yeah, the, and the double entry book. I just love. I love. He's a genius. He's not. Genius, he's not. You? He's not above really crap. Kind of. It just made me laugh a lot when he's he, the, the, one of the characters says, "You know, cool. Would you credit it?" And he says, mm, "I'd have to think about that." <laughs> that I think he. Put, I think that, the thing oh, is that's It's like great never joke. thought that. You know what, joke. And you know what he does? He does it three times yeah, in the, the book. Yeah, yeah. I, so that the third time you're going. Ah, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See what he done there. Never noticed that. There's also, there's also the running joke of the butcher bird, the Shrike. Um, yeah. You may not know, but some readers may, and some might. Yeah, he says yeah, it's a bump what's the, what's when, it was, when it was being translated into Dutch, I was part of a B.S. Johnson internet group, and the Dutch translator wrote to him and said, Can anyone explain why Christie's girlfriend is called the Shrike? The answer is because she works in a. I might as well spoil it for the world. She works in a butcher's <laughs> shop. Yeah. She is a co- she is a bird in Cockney rhyming slang, and a butcher bird is the shrike. The shrike is an animal that I believe lets its prey hangs up its prey. Yeah, it impales them on a on a spike. Basically, the, the butcher bird they hang there, and they, so you can eat them later. And they often aren't dead by the by the time mm. they eat them. So it's just it's. But if you don't, it took me a long time to find this out. It's a very involved joke. It has nothing to do with the Shrike's character, which has to be said is minimally written. <laughs> <laughs> and when yeah. you think her penchant for, for, for uh, shaving yeah. foam, shaving yeah. foam. Yeah. When, that's another reason I enjoyed the book when I was sixteen. <laughs> yeah. I'd never heard of this practice. It's funny. It's the first time I was introduced to it as well. It's always oh, got this great scene where a bird, you get to shave every 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 hair off a bird's body. And the yeah. best thing is. It's it's a re- it's relevant to the story. Yeah, it's a it's a perfect narrative device. Yeah. For it is shaving foam that hastens the untimeliness of it all. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, David, it was Christy Mowry when you came to write your own fiction? I, I have to say, having not finished the Mule that long ago, no I, one has. Oh, I see. Yeah, whether it's whether he was his 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 one of those voices in your head when you're writing. I think he's too good to be. I think there's a dryness of tone that he has that nobody else has. But I think it's just a kind of mulch of comedy, just confirmed aspects of comedy. If I could write anything like B.S. Johnson, I'd be a very happy man. I think that sense of humour is inside me because of reading that at such an early age. Have you got any more tenuous links, Matthew? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> so I've got, yeah, I've got a tenuous link for us to go out on. And there are two, actually. I've got one I thought this week I'd try and get a tenuous link to John and to Andy... Uh, and, I, and I found one, actually. It was relatively easy to find one for both of you. Relatively so, easy, I like that. So, Go on. So, John, I'm going to tell you what yours is, because I think you probably know a little bit about it already, <laughs> which is that two weeks before he died, 
B.S. Johnson went for a drink in the Falkland Arms, which is your local pub. It is my local pub, yeah. And why? Do, what do you think he was doing there? Hey, well, he was staying. He would have stayed with a, uh, a mutual friend of ours, a guy called Peter Buckman, who was in. Takes the other book off the desk. Uh, Peter was a publisher, but also a writer. He'd written one novel called uh, Playground, but he was a great friend of, of B.S. Johnson's, and he lives in Little Chew which is the next village to Great Chew, which is where I live and where the Falkland Arms is. And when Jonathan Coe was writing his biography, Like a Fiery Elephant, he came and stayed in the pub as well because he was interviewing Peter about B.S. Johnson. So, yeah, that's my link. So for Andy, Matt, have you got a little bit of a prompt here that we can give him just to start this off? So do you recognise this, Andy? Or maybe open it. It's, uh, yeah. it's the Kinks. It is the Kinks. It's Victoria by the Kinks. Well, it's a version of Victoria by the Kinks. It's the Falls. Right, yeah. The Falls, Victoria. Yeah. Okay, so this is the Falls version of Victoria. That is the. <laughs> so, um. We've and reached you, Peak Miller. This is Peak Miller, basically. Go so, on. What is the connection between the writer Andy Miller? The Kinks and B.S. Johnson, bearing in mind that you've written a book about the Kinks. So Maybe actually, this should be. A sunny afternoon. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I wrote a book about the Village Green Preservation Society LP. It's, yeah, it's not that LP. It's a oh, different, it's a different LP. LP. But you did write about the Kinks, so you should. Oh, okay. I'd be surprised if you. Um, oh. I'd be surprised if you didn't uh, know this. I'm disappointed, I suppose, would be the word. Not yeah, all right. <laughs> can, you give it, can you tell... Yeah, you give John... Tell John's what it yes, is, though, harsh. right? A bit harsh? Yeah, go Well, on. go on, Andy, you've had... Um... There's a record... I, 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 well, I don't know, Matthew, but there is a record by the Panisse brothers called B.S. Johnson. Is there? Yeah, okay. and very nice it is, no, no, too. It's, it's not that. It's actually something to do with Victoria. So the song Victoria is the opening track on... Arthur. Or the decline and fall of the British Empire by the and Kings. And Arthur is based on. Do you know what it's based on? It's based. Oh, it's based on um, Ray Davis's brother-in-law. And it's based on a play that was written by Ray Davis and Julian. His name? Julian Mitchell. Julian Mitchell. That's right. And Julian Mitchell is one of the writers that contributed to that book on the other side of the table, London. Oh, Prince there you go. That is so, so tenuous. There you go. To be I, I mean, <laughs> I tried to um, I tried to explain this to my colleague Phil that how tenuous this thing was earlier in the week. And literally, his eyes glazed over about five seconds. He's completely lost. It, 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 but there you have it. Just I'm what, just waking up now, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you're right. I'm disappointed I didn't get that, though, Matthew. It's quite interesting it's one, set actually, of writers on the, the back of this book. I mean, there's some that are probably less well-remembered than others, but Eva Figes, I suppose, is still remembered. Wilson Harris, uh, from yeah. uh, novelist. And Rainer Heppelstall, not really remembered at all, but interesting. Olivia Manning. And then Adrian Mitchell and Julian Mitchell. Yeah. Piers Paul Reed, but Melvin Bragg certainly is. Ah, okay. and, and Julian Mitchell's best known, in fact, now for his work on Inspector Morse. Believe really, as, ah. as was Peter Putman, also wrote Peter really? uh, Inspector Morse. Yeah, if only B.S. Johnson had written Inspector Morse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we here? <laughs> Oh, Your point four. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yes, you could see him being a really, really. I know who the murderer is, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, because <laughs> all because it's all, all made up. All is chaos. Lame, good cop, made bad up. cop. Mm. Lewis interrogates. Morse comes in. Oh, I'll call this lying. <laughs> right. 
Well, on that, on, on that happy bombshell, it's probably time to wind up. Uh, thank you very much, David, for thank coming you. in and, and yes, sharing you, your, your knowledge and love of B.S. Johnson and to Matthew, obviously, for a link more tenuous than any we've hitherto had. This is Backlisted, at Backlisted Pod on Twitter. Do go there to, to follow us, or Backlisted Podcast on Facebook. And we'll see you all again next time. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.